Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Casey Georgeson, the founder and CEO of luxury CBD skincare line, St. Jane. Welcome, Casey. Thanks, Priya. I'm so excited to be here finally. I know. It's been a long time, Casey, and I feel like we had planned to do this right when COVID hit last year in March, when I think maybe we thought we were going to go home for a few days, and then <laughs> here we are a year later. So where are you? Tell our, your, our guests where you are. Where you recently moved from the San Francisco area to LA, so it's been a lot of change for you this year, right? It's been a ton of change. Yeah, so we were in Marin, up outside of San Francisco forever, and last year we spent a lot of time down here in Manhattan Beach seeing family and made this crazy decision to make a move to be closer to some family down here and the ocean. And it has been such an interesting transition. It's been so good, I think, for our family and for for me. I get to be closer to my St. Jane team, which is really exciting. So it's been a really fun adventure. How has it felt like, I mean, there's so much beauty happening in LA and in that area right now. I mean, not only your team, but other brands. Have you been able to kind of feel that a little bit, even with the, you know, social distancing and stay-at-home orders kind of still in place? Yes, it feels like, I mean, there were a lot of really amazing brands and founders up in Northern California, but there are equally, if not more, down here in Southern California. It does feel like there, when COVID really gets better for all of us, which is hopefully soon, that we can start seeing each other in person. But there are so many extraordinary founders down here who I've become friends with, and our all of our most of our suppliers are down here too. So I can't wait to go back to those regular in-person meetings. Um, but yeah, it does feel really exciting to be down in Southern California and just a fresh change. I think for me, you know, being a Bay Area native and living there for so long, I had a stint in New York as well, but living there for so long, just having this this sort of reset for um, for my family, for the business has been, has been really refreshing. When I first met you, I think it was in 2018, you were in our office at One Liberty and here you were like, and for those of you who, who don't know Casey personally, I mean, she looks like the most beautiful founder out there, but she, you came in there and you were this like very like elevated, like chic woman with blonde hair and very stylized. And you came to me and you were like, I'm starting a luxury CBD line. And it was just like the most disparate concept at the time because CBD was so crunchy and so kind of like hippy dippy. So I would love for you to talk about, you know, what gave you the gumption or or the idea to even do this and why CBD? You are so kind. I think it's, um, I definitely was, uh, flying, flying a bit blind back then. And, you know, a lot of optimism and excitement about the category, I have been a brand creator, as you know, for the majority of my career. I've worked in beauty and wine, and I've always been that behind the scenes kind of brand creator. And oftentimes people would ask me, when are you going to start your own brand? What do you, when are you going to be a founder? And I never felt like I had the big idea to do that, to make the leap. I knew what went into it and I knew how extraordinarily difficult it would be. And it would take me away from my family and my, my balance would be disrupted. But I really believed when I discovered CBD, I believed in the extraordinary benefits of that molecule. 
Um, the sort of breadcrumbs that led to creating St. Jane really started in the wine industry first, where I created brands like Cupcake Vineyards. That was the first brand I ever created. And and then in the beauty space, when I was at Kendo, uh, while it was still a little team at Sephora, I was like the fifth employee there. And my role was to dream up these beauty brands for the Sephora environment. And so I, I definitely felt comfortable in that brand creation space. What I didn't know in that first meeting that you and I had was just, you know, all of the things that go into being an entrepreneur and taking that, you know, little crystal of an idea and building it out and growing a brand. Uh, but I've learned a lot and it's been, you know, it's been just so extraordinarily rewarding. But um, but back then, yeah, I, I had I had some stars in my eyes. It's I've learned a lot since then. You know, I always think it's interesting that you were behind the scenes for so long. I mean, at CNN as a producer, you weren't on air, you were, as a, you were a producer. And then at Sephora and in the wine industry, you were creating these brands. What was it about, what did you learn during that time that you think that you thought like informed, you know, your future career? That is such a good question. I think for me, it was about listening. I was really comfortable being behind the scenes and not being in front of the camera, being the one who dreamed up the ideas versus out there front and center talking about them. I think part of that was really driven by, I'm really sort of like a, I'm a sensitive soul and very empathetic. And so it was about listening. And it pushed me outside of my comfort zone to go from the behind the scenes creator to the front and center marketer and sort of founder that was uh, that was on the border of my comfort zone and I had to push myself it's funny I was just watching American Idol with the kids and Lionel Richie said the best things happen at the edge of your comfort zone and that really resonated with me because it's true it's pushing yourself to to go into new territories that don't necessarily feel natural to you but I think that my experience listening and being the brand creator versus the brand builder or the brand founder really led to this kind of, you know, quiet confidence that I probably have in, okay, I can do this and I can set the boundaries and I can, I can do it and I can do it my way. What about, you know, your time at Sephora specifically? Because, you know, that at that time, you know, the idea of incubation was pretty, you know, new and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the L'Oreal's or the Lauders of the world that was kind of creating brands. So, you know, you were involved with Kat Van D, you were involved with so many of those early Kendo brands. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you think that's changed that incubation process? Like starting an indie brand, you know, two years ago versus, you know, starting an indie brand when you first started doing it. It has changed so much in such an exciting way for indie brands, but I think those those years at Sephora were like a PhD in the beauty industry. And my role, I had never heard of this role before, of this liaison between designers or you know the Disneys of the world and imagining those brands in the beauty space. And so it was really a dream job and I felt so grateful to have it. And I learned so much about what would resonate in the beauty industry. But, you know, it, it has changed. And I think being an indie brand today is there's a different dialogue that you have with clients and customers because of the levers that you can pull in social media and um, through email marketing and SMS marketing. There's just so much more than there was back then. Um, I, I wish I knew then what I know now and started a brand. Um, I always sort of joke that it feels like, you know, my my crew of brand founders are like the freshmen and the touches and the drunk elephants are like the seniors. And we're just starting out and trying to catch our footing and learn the ropes. But 
But it's, it is a very exciting time, I think, because of all the ways, the unique creative ways that we can communicate with our customers. Um, but back then, yeah, it was really Sephora's strategy was to create these brands that differentiated Sephora from the other retailers so that people would come in looking for them. They were exclusive to Sephora. And, um, and so for, for my role specifically and for the Kendo team, we were challenged with coming up with the ways that those brands would resonate with the Sephora client. And so we had to get really creative, just like we do now as an indie brand. We have to get really creative about how to resonate. Do you think it's easier or harder now to be an indie brand? I think in some ways it's easier because of the relationship, the very authentic relationship that you can have. It's not a big advertising campaign that is in print. Now it's about the dialogue on social media. But I think that it's harder and that it's so crowded. There are so many amazing brands that are trying to break through. Um, you know, we're one of them. And and I think that, you know, it's it's about... Um, having a passion for your idea. And it's not enough to say, oh, my idea addresses a unique problem in the market. You have to be more than that. You have to be two or three things more than that. So for us, it was, we are, you know, we're CBD, but we're not just CBD. We are luxury CBD and we are performance-driven CBD. And so we had multiple layers to the story of the brand that I think helped us break through uh, because oftentimes you can look and you can see, a solution out there in a product for whatever problem you have. There's just so much good stuff out there. So let's talk about CBD because I know you said it kind of started in the wine industry and when you were formulating cupcake vineyards and, and some of those brands. So tell me, you know, why you thought CBD could translate to the uh, luxury space and that why a brand, why a place like Sephora or Saks or any of these luxury retailers would actually carry it. So as humans, we have had a relationship with cannabis and CBD for 6,000 years, and it has been a kind of fascination with the molecule. And But we didn't, we didn't actually identify CBD until the 60s. It was more cannabis and everything that came with cannabis. And so when I discovered CBD, not necessarily being a big pot connoisseur at the time or marijuana THC connoisseur, I fell in love with what it promised. I think I, I've told this story. I was reading a pop sugar article and the headline was CBD is nature Xanax meets Advil. And I was like, what is this? What is this molecule? I have to understand more. Um, you know, pain and anxiety are huge uh, issues for so many women right now. And so I went to a dispensary and, and asked them to show me all of the CBD that they had available. And it was all very crunchy and looked really homemade. And so I felt a responsibility. But next to the, all those products were this list of things that CBD was reported to do. So reducing anxiety, helping with sleep, gut health, immunity, um, skin issues, inflammation. And I thought, wow, this could be the most exciting skincare ingredient and wellness ingredient of our time. And so it was a it wasn't really a decision at that point. I started working with it and I felt very passionate about what it could do and how we could break through. I didn't think it would be as big as it was in 2019 and St. Jane I think hit the scene at a really good time where we had the convergence of, you know, the media was really interested in it, editors were were curious, retailers were starting to see the benefits. The Farm Bill had just opened up some regulations. It was this perfect storm for us and we came in looking very different. And that was intentional. I wanted there to be a very thoughtful, elevated approach 
approach to the CBD category because I wanted to bring new people into it and really start to kind of detangle that 6,000 year relationship that we've had with cannabis and reimagine it and see it in a new way. And I think that's what we've done. We've been able to sort of say, okay, you might not be into going to a dispensary, but CBD is not that. CBD is a vitamin. It is a supplement. It is good for you. It's a wellness ingredient. And so let's do it justice by, you know, packaging it in a beautiful way and pairing it with other botanicals that are really also equally as active and performance driven. So, so that you really have a good experience in trying it and coming back to it. So when you think about, you know, that confluence of things that you were talking about a second ago, you know, the media, I remember in 2018, 2019, I felt like as much as I was a beauty editor, I became like the CBD editor. You know, I was <laughs> writing about you guys and I was writing about Lord Jones and I was writing about the farm bill. And like, it was like you said, a perfect storm and everybody wanted to know when Sephora was going to be carrying um, cannabis in store or Ulta, et cetera. So I'm wondering, you know, like when you tried to unpack that a little bit, what, what, what was difficult about that? Because I think people were really confused at the time, like what CBD could do if it was a drug, you know, we were all like indoctrinated with this like dare mentality of the eighties and nineties, but now millennial women are the ones who are really gravitating towards CBD. Yeah, it felt a little bit dangerous. It didn't, it wasn't like any other ingredient that we had ever dis discovered or used in skincare. It felt at St. Jane like we were really pushing the boundaries. And I think that's where a lot of people and retailers and editors, that's where the curiosity came. Um, I think the when you when you tried CBD and stuck with it, whether you were ingesting it or whether you were using it in your skin, you you did notice a difference. A lot of people did. Many people did, and and so I think that it was it was very much a fascinating, almost dangerous, but very intriguing, borderline medicinal. Felt like a miracle cure all, um, and and I think people were really wanted to go deeper on that, and so. It was a really interesting time and retailers did push the boundaries and they did bring it to shelves. There was the demand there. And that was, I mean, that was really good for us. It was good for a lot of the brands that launched at the time, because I think that we were unable as little indie brands to do a lot of that marketing that you would do. If we were a traditional skincare brand that didn't have CBD, it would have looked very different. Our retailers were our influencers. They were our marketing platforms. They were our trial and awareness, and they were our, um, our, our voices because we were so hindered by the challenges and the regulations at the time. How has that changed now? Because I know digitally two years ago, three years ago, you couldn't advertise, you couldn't promote. I remember talking to Michael from Kanuka and he saying that he thought he was going to start that brand just D to C and then realize like, oh, wait, we can't advertise at all. So what were those kind of barriers like and what are they like today when digital marketing and, and store behavior has like kind of flip-flopped? It's such a good question. When when I started St. Jane, I was, you know, as you know, a brand creator. I wasn't even fully aware of all of the world of opportunities in e-commerce and digital marketing that were out there for traditional brands. And so as I learned them, but I was reading all of the articles and glossy and everywhere else that said, focus on DTC, that's the foundation for your business. And then, you know, retailers are your second priority. For us, it was flip-flopped because we realized, okay, well, we can start to grow an email list, but we really don't have a great way of acquiring those, those customers. Or we could go out and advertise on Instagram, but oh, wait, we keep getting our ad, ads rejected. Why are we being rejected? 
Um, we could, you know, use Shopify payments, but oh wait, Shopify doesn't allow CBD. So there, and payment processing became a big beast. And so DTC was very much on the back burner in 2019. It wasn't until 2020 when really retail changed so much. And at the same time, very fortunately for us, there were some uh, things that opened up on the regulation side with advertising and with payment processing. And so we were allowed um, to sort of look more like a normal brand in 2020 than we ever had before, where we could focus on our DTC. And we did grow. We grew 300%, which, you know, was was really exciting because we were able to pull those levers for the first time. I think we were also forced to get creative in how we looked at advertising partners. So we couldn't go the traditional routes, but there were companies out there that were willing to hold our hand and help us navigate the uncharted waters of CBD in a way that did help. Like we were able to get creative with retargeting. And um, and and I think that those partnerships and those companies that believed in what we were doing and helped us build that foundation, I'll be forever grateful to them. And I think, you know, down the road, things are just going to get easier, I hope. It seems that way. Things are going to get easier, especially with brands that are really responsibly architecting the narrative of CBD and not overpromising and really doing justice to its its efficacy and and what it can do and what it can't do. So it's been, but it's been a roller coaster. I mean, it's if if someone had told me in 2018, 2019 that we would have had to face the challenges that we faced, I would have said, no, there's no way. This is CBD. This is not heroin. <laughs> but it was treated like that. I mean, do you still get ads rejected by, you know, Google or Facebook or Instagram? Because I remember there was a time where everything you did you did have that, had that experience. And I think, did you tell me you created like some like almost like fake account to see if you could get away with things? I'm, I'm remembering this, like <laughs> in terms of like what you could promote, what you couldn't promote and like to really kind of test the waters. Yeah, we still get ads rejected all of the time. Last night I had a panic with um, our digital agency and I was like, um, I'm seeing a lot of rejections. What's going on? Because you just do not want your account to, account to be disabled. These are things that other brands don't have to deal with. It's so funny. But my personal Facebook, what you're remembering is my personal Facebook was disabled because I had tried too many times to advertise from it and they didn't like what I was advertising. So I am permanently, permanently banned from Facebook personally, which I find so funny because I'm like, listen, if you go on my Facebook account, it's like just pictures of my daughters and my kids. It's just not my puppy. Um, there's, It's just funny. But yes, we still have it. I mean, yes, it is not smooth sailing. Casey, so I think what's interesting about all of this is like, you know, you were so one of the first luxury brands that so many retailers got on board with, you know, obviously Sephora, what we're going to talk about in a second, but you were also like in places like Barney's, which is now, you know, not, you know, in operation anymore. You, you kind of went very wide at the beginning, you know, with Saks and, and Bergdorf and all of the above. And so I'm just wondering, like now knowing what's going on from a store perspective, from a high level, like what do you think about the distribution? And like, is it more important to be, you know, very deep with each retailer or wide, like, because it's a new category, what are your thoughts there? I think it's very important to be deep with the right retailers. Distribution is so important. And we, I think because when we launched, it was so exciting. It felt very much like we were building the airplane mid-flight. It was hard to say no. 
I wish that I knew then what I know now. And I believe in going deep with retailers. We have unbelievable distribution and I'm so grateful for it. And I think that if you can really establish a brand building strategy with the retailers that you're in and the retailers that believe in you and that have held your hand and said, we we are going to grow your business methodically and we're going to help you, give you the tools to to get there, um, then you you should really listen to that. And And we have. And I think it's helped tremendously to be in Sephora and Credo. And, and I think that those... They're very different. The two of them are very different, but they are both very committed to the brands that they've brought on and helping to architect the narrative of those brands and grow and tap into their communities in a way. Um, and so the support, the support from retailers, listen to that and go deep with it and really figure out how to how to nourish it and nurture it so that you can grow. Um, casting the net too wide, you don't want to be a mile wide and an inch deep that is, there's, there's nowhere to go from there. And if you're a small team, you, you have to really focus on, you know, the, especially a small team in CBD, you have to focus on the levers you can control. There's so much out of your control that if you can focus on the levers that are within your control and really nurture those, then you're going to be in a much better place. I think faster, it might not feel that way at first, but, but ultimately um, it's, it's going to get you to a really solid foundation for your business uh, where you can you can really grow over time. Would you have ever imagined, you know, in launching in Barney's, you know, what how that ended up or how that turned out? Because you know, I think for so many play people in beauty, that was the place to launch, like from a luxury point of view. I mean, not to mention fashion, but for beauty too, it was very much like it was cool, it was edgy, it was on the cusp. But I mean, I'm sure there was like so many lessons learned from, you know, an operational standpoint from something like that? Yeah, that was hard. I think I was, I I really didn't expect that that would happen, that they would go bankrupt. And we had invested in, in that channel. They were doing a really good business for us. It was exciting. Barney's gave us a stamp of approval on the luxury front and they were great partners. Um, and, and then, you know, towards the end, it started to become clear that they weren't doing great. And, you know, payments got further and further out. And it was hard. It, I took it, I took it personally, in in some respect, because I was like, Oh, my gosh, we're so little. And I can't control your balance sheet, I can control mine. But you know, this is this is a crazy blow for a company that's only at the at the time, I think we were five months old, we were so young. So it was hard, but it, I learned a lot from it. And the biggest lesson is that I learned that I, I truly have to be very careful about who we partner with and the terms that we agree to. And the fact that we, you know, we we can't control the balance sheets of our retailers. We have to, so much of it is built on trust and the relationship. And, and really setting the guardrails and the boundaries, especially as an indie brand where you're, you're just, you know, you're just happy to be here. You're like, thanks for having me. I'm just so, so grateful for the invitation to the party, but you have to create those boundaries and say, no, we expect, you know, these terms and um, we have to protect our business because we're so young and we have so much opportunity, but we have to be really careful. So Casey, you know, knowing what happened to Barney's and knowing what's happened to so many businesses in COVID with mall businesses, standalone businesses, all of the above, like, has it made you maybe more reticent to take on new partners or maybe make force you to go deeper with existing partners and, and pull back? 
Yeah, and I think we look at it like we have such an opportunity with our existing retailers to grow and to to connect with their community in a more meaningful way. So that's what we're focused on. We're focused on, you know, we are we're still so we're still so small and so new as a brand. We have a lot of uh, wood to chop on growing and connecting with the, the retailers and the communities within the retailers that we're already in. So that's what we're focused on for now. And maybe that'll change down the road, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. Is that how you're going to approach your international business as well? Yes, we are going to go very slowly. We had a really fun limited edition partnership with Joyce Beauty last summer, and it was great. It sold out really quickly in like three weeks. And it um, it showed us that there is demand in other parts of the world. And we've, we've had a lot of inbound requests internationally since we started the brand. It just felt like we needed to establish a really strong foundation in the U.S., Get a straight A, get straight A's here, build a business, have a healthy business, and then think about global. And so we're it's on our minds. We are continuing to talk to international retailers about when the right time is. Uh, and I think I think it's it's an it's exciting. It does feel like CBD in the U.S. in 2019 with all of the interest internationally. So so we'll get there. Um, we're going there. It's we're just we're approaching it very methodically and very thoughtfully. Kind of coming back here to the U.S. You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting and kind of I mean fortuitous, but also like what crazy timing is that you kind of kicked off, helped kick off, you know, Sephora CBD standards last year, right before Storks closed. So, I mean, it was this huge, like, you know, push for the brand that you were going from Sephora.com to stores, but then things kind of flatlined because of COVID-19. What was that like? And like, kind of how are you viewing that relationship from a store to D to C perspective? Yes. So we launched in Sephora stores in January of 2020. We had been online 2019, launched in stores January 2020. It was, we had, you know, payment processing had opened up and we were able to advertise on Instagram and Facebook. And it felt like just blue skies ahead. And then COVID hit and it really, it it was like this moment of, okay, well, this is 2020 is not going to go the direction that we anticipated. And when you and I talked about doing the podcast back then, I was like, well, I'm not exactly sure what to say right now. I'm a little stunned by all of this. Uh, Give me some time to figure out what's happening. It felt, I think a lot of indie brand founders felt like we were in an airplane that had just lost its engines and we weren't sure what was going to happen. Are we going to have a soft landing? Is it going to be a little crazier than that? So it was very uncertain, but I think that what it ended up doing for us at St. Jane was we were forced into focusing again on those levers we can control and letting go of the levers we couldn't. So that's where our DTC finally got its foundation. And and we were able to build build out what I wish we had built out when we first started the brand, but we just couldn't, we didn't have the bandwidth or, you know, the regulations were still too stringent. And so we were able to, to do that in 2020. And at the same time, retailers were figuring that out as well, where their e-commerce business were starting to really pick up and grow. And they were figuring out new ways to communicate with their clients and customers. And, and so we saw you know, really great growth for the brand because of that, because we were able to finally focus on our own site and our retailers were able to pivot and continue to grow us. And it was, it ended up, you know, I sort of looked at my team at the end of the year and I was like, wow, guys, great job. Like we just, we grew more than I think any of us ever thought, you know, we were still launching products in 2020 when other brands were really nervous too. 
And I think we were we were continuing to operate on gut instinct about what felt right for the business. And, and that ended up serving us very, very well. So we did, yeah, we ended the year and we were like, okay, let's let's do it again. Let's do it 2021. This is this is good. Two points on that, Casey. You know, one thing I have to ask is that I know so many founders were like thrown into the limelight, especially with Instagram Live and TikTok and everything, because you know, you had to drive that Sephora.com business. For you, I mean, I know you're so much more in the spotlight than your your kendo days or your your um, CNN days, but at the same time, like, what was that like for you? Because I mean, you're literally preaching the gospel of CBD and St. Jane, like real time, live, you know, unedited to everyone and on Sephora's channels. <laughs> yeah, that was so far outside of my comfort zone. And I remember watching all of these founders who did it so effortlessly. It's like, gosh, that's so impressive. I wish I could be more, be less shy about it. So I had to push myself to do it. And it was really, I I loved that retailers believed that I could do it. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do this. But it it was definitely different for me. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that felt natural at first. I got to a point where I sort of stopped caring. Like I would never listen to the podcasts I did. I would never rewatch the IG lives. I just had to put it out into the universe and move on to the next thing because I would just get full body nerdy chills watching myself. And and so, but I believed in that dialogue that needed to happen between the founders and, and the communities. That was important because the founder represents the brand, is the brand in a lot of ways and validates the brand. And, and so for, for me, I got used to it, but it was not, it was not natural at all. Casey, do you think that the founder story is even more important now than before um, COVID-19? I do. I think founders have always played a really important role in brands. It's part of that inception story. Where did, where did this come from? Where did this brand idea come from? Somebody out there believed in it enough to sacrifice their normal life to become a founder. And I think founders represent the passion behind brands in a lot of ways. And that was amplified in COVID because people, they're, you know, people changed how they lived. And I remember, you know, my, my personal story is I went from being in an office every day to being in my home office with my three daughters right next to me. It was like our little Georgeson co-working space. And the world and my team saw my life so differently. It was very, and all, and a lot of founders and, and people in general, it was seeing people with more humanity through a different light. COVID humanized everyone because we were seeing them at home. And so I do think that that dialogue between founders and the communities that um, support the brands is, it is a relationship and it validates, and in a lot of ways it validates what the brand stands for because you've got somebody who, you know, who believed in it so much to to launch it and to, to put their sort of lives aside to do it. You know, one thing I'm always surprised by, and I always, I love to hear, to talk, I love to hear you talk about this is that despite, you know, this huge Sephora distribution, despite the Joyce partnership and, and Credo, of course, you know, you're actually quite small in terms of like the people who work on St. Jane. So will you talk a little bit about how big this team actually is? Yes, I am so lucky to have such an incredible team of really smart, very high integrity women that believe in what we're doing. 
And I think that, you know, having a good team is everything. It is the hardest part about building a business, especially a startup. So figuring out who you work well with, who you trust, who believes in what you're doing is is essential to your success. And building a culture that your brand uh, represents is equally as important. So for us, you know, St. Jane, she was an actual healer who lived lived in the 1500s and dedicated her life to healing women in France who society shunned, the very old, the very sick, unwed mothers. And so I've I've been very fortunate to um to have this very small but mighty team of women who believe in that mission and who believe in what we're doing. Um and but we're very small. I mean, we have eight people on our team. Uh, there are three full-time employees, myself being one of them. And then we have um, a crew of freelancers that uh, also support the business. But we're, we're incredibly I, small but mighty is the only way I can say it. The amount of work that everybody gets done in a day is superhuman. And I feel really grateful. It's fun. I want everyone to feel very inspired by working with St. Jane as a brand and as a company. And so building out that team and building out that culture is really important to me. I want people to have fun with it. We're, you know, we're creating skincare that helps people's skin. And, and that is very rewarding. What does that look like, you know, when you think about the rest of 2021 and 2022? I know a lot of indie brands are kind of getting to this inflection point where, you know, to grow bigger, do I need to hire a CMO or a president or an SVP or et cetera? Like, do you want to hire more people full time? Like, what is your in your perfect world? What would that look like? Well, I just hired a COO who is a dynamo. She comes from Joe's Jeans in the fashion space, and she is just retail operations, operations ninja. So I feel really lucky about adding her to the St. Jane crew. But I, my philosophy is to go really slow with it. I want to make sure that we are not overextending ourselves and having too many uh, overlapping roles or, you know, we, we, we're being very strategic about how we grow the team. Right now, it feels like we are building an extraordinary foundation for growing the business in 2021. Um, but yeah, it's, we have to grow. I think we're, we're poised to do really well this year. And as we grow and grow revenue, we will grow functions. But it's about this foundation first. And if so far it feels like we have exactly the right people in place. And um, and that's that's it's taken time. It's taken time to get there, but it feels like we're we're in a good place now. And how does that relate to funding? Because I know you've gotten many inbound requests. I know that you've talked to different firms here and there over the over the years. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, investors used to say, oh, you know, CBD is hype. It's just one one ingredient. You can't have a whole brand on that. And now here we are. So how does that how does that affect what you think about the investing space and fundraising and taking on, you know, partners? We have been self-funded to date, and that has been good for us in that we've been, my philosophy is really let's crawl before we walk, before we run, and we can lean into growth as it comes, but it's okay to be small, and it's okay to be authentic and thoughtful and do things the, the sort of slower, more methodical way while we get our footing. I do believe that investors are important to bigger scale growth. And we realize that, you know, we have the kindling and we have this spark and we have this brand that seems to be really resonating with people. And there's going to come a point where we need to put some lighter fluid on that. So it's always top of mind. I talk to a lot of investors and I find those conversations to be so rewarding. 
and so interesting because they're looking at it through a different lens. But it feels like we have more work to do as a small indie brand before we bring that on. Um, it will it will happen, and it will happen at some point, probably sooner than I think. But um, but for now, being self funded, we've also been able to establish you know, kind of nice profitability for the business. So we're able to fund a lot of the new growth initiatives that we're interested in. And that's been really exciting because we're like, oh, well, this is an interesting new, you know, influencer strategy we might want to deploy. Let's fund it, see what happens. And if it works, let's do more of it. Um, But we haven't had to take on the money yet. So, um, so we'll see. When you think about, you know, what else you want to do this year, you know, what does your future planning look like? Like, I mean, is it more products? Is it more establishing St. Jane and maybe other arenas like vitamin C, which I know was a big hit for you guys last summer. Is it the product side of the business? Is it the marketing side of the business? What are you thinking about? Well, it will continue to be creating really beautiful formulas that have not only high concentrations of CBD, but other botanicals that support CBD's mission of really reducing inflammation in the skin. And so we have some exciting launches for this year and we'll keep you posted, obviously, on all of those. But um, it is about, you know, creating new product introductions that help to tell the story of the brand and help to fill in gaps in our assortment and meeting the client where they are in their skin needs and in their skin journey. It's also about trial and awareness of the products that we've already created. Our luxury beauty serum continues to be the crown jewel in our assortment. So beautiful, really transforming people's skin. It's like a treatment. And so we can't move off of that product too quickly. It is it is just such a such a great formula. And then it is about growing, you know, the awareness piece of it is about pulling those marketing levers and reaching people in new places. I think we have a lot of, you know, we're still we're still very niche. We're still very boutique. I think we have a lot of education to do around CBD still, and we're very committed to that. We're committed to the education and making sure that we really responsibly architect the narrative of CBD and do it justice. Do you think that that education piece, you know, has gotten harder or easier, you know, with not being able to go into stores and do the in-store training that once we used to be able to do and people really prided themselves on creating those teams, those giant teams to do that. And now you're kind of really doing that yourself from home, you know, with your three daughters next to you. (laughs) Totally. And don't forget, we still can't say CBD in any of our ads and we can't say CBD in most of our marketing. So there's, it is a challenge. I think it's, it's, in our field team at Sephora, we educate there and we can message it in our feed and in our stories and in our blog and on our website. And we, well, on our website sparingly, because you also have to be careful there. So we do feel, I mean, obviously we feel very committed to to continuing that education in, in a way that both balances our ability to grow the brand and marketing and to tell the story of CBD. I really believe that in five years, a lot of formulators are going to turn to CBD as an incredible choice for an inflammation-reducing ingredient in a lot of skincare. I think it's going to be more normalized than it is now. It's just how do we get from here where there's still some stigma around it for for good reason. There's there's education that needs to happen, but um, but then ultimately where we land, which is that it is it is a powerful ingredient and it should be used in skincare in the right way. So, um, yeah, so we're committed to it. And I think it's it's going to be about, you know, continuing the dialogue with, with the people who are interested in learning. Thanks so much, Casey. It was great having you today. Thanks, Priya. 
Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.